Okay, good evening, everybody, or good afternoon. My name is Noam Dwarman. This is a special edition of Live from the Table. I'm here with two uh, good friends of mine, Mr. Coleman Hughes, who has a podcast called Conversations with Coleman, and Mr. Michael Moynihan, who is one of the trio that does the Fifth Column podcast, which is available uh, both in free doses and on Patreon, correct? No, uh, Patreon. We don't. Go, uh, we're at uh, what's it called? Substack now. Yeah. Oh, weren't you on Patreon? We were, but they like censor people, and then the Substack people are really nice. So. <laughs> so. And so, so you, you have, so Moynihan uh, has one of the few uh, podcasts that I know of that actually can sustain subscribers. Yes. Which is, yeah. Uh, you you probably don't sufficiently uh, realize what an accomplishment that is. I don't, but I do know that it's my job now, which I st- still find completely ridiculous and absurd that uh, my job is to talk about uh, things that interest me. So, you know. so anyways, anyway, the three of us talk about Israel all the time. Uh, I would say uh, Michael is, um, is, is maybe the most pro, <clears throat> pro-Israel non-Jew I've ever met. I'm a righteous um, Gentile now. You're, yeah, you're special. <laughs> so... Uh, <clears throat> This 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 conversation begins because um, I was uh, emailing with my uh, my friend Norman Finkelstein, and um, uh, who's also doing an event, by the way, with Cornell West at the club in, in next week. I don't know if you guys mm. want to come. Mm. Cornell West is. I, I had a Zoom call with Cornell West. He is amazing. This Did guy, he call you brother Norm the whole time? Yeah, the whole time. Yes, it's but great. He mean, but he means it. <laughs> He does. I'm. I really am impressed by him. I think he's been on the fifth column w- once uh, with Camille. I'm not sure, but we all kind of love him. And it's kind of like your relationship with Norman Finkelstein, somebody that you profoundly disagree with, but yet can't help really liking. And that's that's Cornell West for me. Yeah, yeah I mean, he's, he's he's one of the warmest people I've ever. Um, I call him the. Uh, I call him black, with. black Dalai Lama. The black Dalai Lama. <laughs> yeah. So, so Finkelstein writes, um, when I wanted him to have him on the show again, wanted to have him on the show again, he writes the following: One idea is to clip the strongest arguments against me from the various videos you have done. I've not watched them, but I understand you had strong proponents of Israel's position, and then ask me to respond, sort of what Crystal Ball did in the interview with me that she posted yesterday. Sincerely, Norman. So, I figured we could uh, talk about some of Finkelstein's arguments, and then I could play them for him. Uh, in the future. Now, I know, uh, mm. Coleman, you've, you've had a lot of thoughts about this already. Yeah. I just want to, the only thing I really want to make sure we get to is his um, Nat Turner argument. Yeah, let's But start. Uh, you, can, you can start wherever you want. Go ahead. And, but make sure that you fill everybody in, you know, steel man, as they say, his argument as best you can. Right. So that people who only watch this will get it. So go ahead. You go first, Coleman. So Finkelstein's argument, as I understand it, is that he can't bring himself to condemn. Hamas, for the same reason that William Lord, Lloyd Garrison, one of the most important white abolitionists, couldn't bring himself to condemn Nat Turner. The argument is that Nat Turner committed atrocities, beheaded babies, so forth, but the white abolitionists and abolitionists in general of the day could not really bring themselves uh, to condemn him. Uh, because they understood the context in which he was committing those atrocities. And Finkelstein, I guess, casts himself in the role of of William Lloyd Garrison relative to Nat Turner. And though he admits to the atrocities, he can't 
condemn condemn them um, or can't condemn rather the people who committed them so at bottom this argument relies on the idea that Palestinians in Gaza uh, and slaves in in the antebellum south are reacting to similar situations reacting to similar levels of oppression uh, and I think it's it's one thing to just say that in the abstract, uh, and it could even go down smooth if you've been primed with with all of the uh, the the facts that Finkelstein likes to highlight about the conditions of Gaza. But I think it's actually worth looking at it in more detail, worth really picturing it and and thinking about it. Like if this is true, then suppose at the end of this war, uh, Israel reoccupies Gaza and for whatever reason decides to enslave every Palestinian in Gaza in the way that black people were enslaved in America. In other words, you put every Palestinian on an auction block, half naked, you separate uh, husbands from wives and parents from children and sell people off individually to the highest Israeli bidder. And for the rest of their lives, Palestinians are just doing hard labor every day and sleeping in overcrowded shacks by night. And uh, occasionally the Israeli slave masters rape the, the women that they feel like raping. Um, Palestinians are no longer allowed to read. All the Qurans are confiscated because they have no need for that anymore and uh, anyone caught breaking these rules could be whipped mercilessly. Now if Israelis woke up after this war and decided to do that to the Palestinians in Gaza, according to Norm, uh, Norm, Norm Finkelstein's argument, it wouldn't make much of an ethical difference because after all the occupation is already that bad. Uh, you know, a, a Palestinian in Gaza would say, well, look, um, I might as well flip a coin between these two situations because it's roughly as bad as, as what we've been experiencing since, uh, since the occupation and, and certainly since the, uh, the blockade. I, I really doubt that uh, this is a sound argument. Uh, and I think you can condemn the conditions in Gaza. You can be honest about what it is to live in Gaza without claiming that it's in the same ballpark as slavery. Michael, you want to add, uh, talk about yeah, that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the thing about Finkelstein's comparison <clears throat> is it's kind of alluring in a way because there is a parallel between what Nat Turner did in 1831 and what happened on October 7th. And that is, you know, that Nat Turner did commit horrible atrocities in the name of a cause that I think all of us could kind of agree with, right? I mean, anti-slavery was, was a noble and just cause, and that was 30 years before the um, beginning of the end of slavery at the beginning of the Civil War. So I, you know, I think that in, in general that works for a couple of reasons because what Nat Turner did was unbelievably brutal. The brutality of it is because it's in service of an anti-slavery cause, 
we say, well, you know, it's fine. No, it's actually not fine. Because what Turner did is killed people. And, you know, there's the famous story of Turner when, when he kills the family that, that enslaved him, the, the, the family that owned him. He turned back and went to kill the baby. Um, that was sleeping and you know there's a level of brutality what he says is that William Lloyd Garrison who's an incredibly interesting and complex figure and if you get a chance to go read the liberator there's copies of it online scanned and I can't remember if it's the National Archives or something and you get a sense of what of what people in the abolitionist movement thought but there's a quote from Eric Foner who if you're a person of the left and, and, and interested in American history you know Eric Foner very well said you know contra Finkelstein, most abolitionists condemned Nat Turner, really condemned Nat Turner. And he goes on to say that in the uh, Fugitive Slave Act, that's when sent, there was a turn towards accepting of violence. If somebody is trying to recapture a slave, you can kill them. This is, we're not pacifists in that way. But there was a large condemnation. And the other thing that's a kind of a parallel, too, is that after Nat Turner's rebellion, which much like October 7th, was doomed to failure. I mean, there's no sense in October 7th that Hamas was going to gain, retain territory. The entire purpose was to maim, murder, and provoke a response. The response was what they wanted. The response is, you know, they love the fact that the Houthis get involved, praying for the, for the Iranians to um, all their other client states like Hezbollah to get involved. And what happens after Nat, Nat Turner's rebellion is a massive pogrom in response, killing, killing blacks and killing slaves. And I think the estimates are 100 to 200 people died. So while there are parallels, the question that you have to have is, what is, what is the moral parallel? Because as Coleman rightly points out, uh, Finkelstein does not want to condemn and will not unequivocally condemn I mean, I haven't heard him condemn Kevin at all. And I just want to be fair to him. Maybe he has said something that's like, maybe this wasn't the right choice. Because that's the thing about Turner, is that the institution is an abomination. And it must be opposed. But it must be opposed within a kind of moral framework that people can agree upon, which is don't kill babies. Right? And that is the thing about Nat Turner is not somebody who gets lots of schools streets named after him right and the reason for that is what you know i'm a block away from malcolm x and one two blocks away from from marcus garvey boulevards in in, in brooklyn not a lot of nat turners and the reason for that is because despite the righteousness of the cause the response to that was was so inhumane and brutal that i don't think many people look back on turner as you know the most righteous of the abolitionists and, and people who oppose slavery. Can, can I ask you guys a question? Do you think Finkelstein is saying that, um, it, that, that it was ethically okay for this to happen? Or was he saying that these people had so reached their psychological breaking point that in some way it's not fair to hold them responsible for this? I think that's action? probably what he's saying. And, you know, I think that um, Coleman did a very good job of kind of elucidating how the fact that, you know, living in Gaza, which I would not want to do myself, and I think is a, is a deeply unfortunate situation. I sent you a video now from, you know, an Al Jazeera report in 2017 about economic development in Gaza City. And, you know, I mean, you look around and it looks like a, a normal functioning city, right? This is not a concentration camp. 
Right? This is not the equivalent of being in bondage. It is an, a, a, a not a good situation in any way. But the problem is, is that you see a lot of these kids that are 18 years old, 19 years old, even 17 years old, who are committing these atrocities on October 7th. The thing is, you have to do a bit of math here. When, did, when does Hamas take over? 2006, and then officially really 2007, when they eliminate the, the Fatah competition. And these are people that are committing these atrocities who have grown up only under this system. Only under a Hamas educational system, Hamas's propaganda, they have been bred in a way to hate Israelis and hate Jews in a way that, you know, is you wouldn't see in a lot of other Arab countries where there is anti-Semitism, but not of the murderous variety. And I think that these are not people who reach their limit. I think these were people that they have been taught from a very early age that um, the only answer to their occupation is the death of, of, of every one of their neighbors, which I think is, well, is, is essentially what they say. Also, I would add, and then I'll let Coleman respond, I don't understand, I don't, um, I'm not well versed in the whole story of Nat Turner, but I'm presuming that Nat Turner was also suffering the plight of all slaves. But the um, October 7th, as I understand it, was not necessarily planned by people who were suffering in Gaza. To some extent, it was planned by people who had their legs up, uh, living very wealth, very wealthy and um, leisurely lives. So they weren't they they couldn't have been at their psychological breaking point. They were weaponizing mm. others, perhaps who were, and that's a big difference, right? Like you can yeah, forgive Turner yeah. because he was suffering, but can you forgive the the Hamas leaders who were not suffering? Right. I mean, I think this is one of the key disanalogies conceptually in Finkelstein's point um, for Finkelstein the people whose behavior he is excusing are the same people who are in part responsible for the conditions being bad in Gaza right Hamas is in part responsible for why the conditions in Gaza are are, are as they are I know he might disagree with that point but you know, to me, when Amnesty International says that you are torturing Palestinians in Al-Shifa Hospital, when you have videos digging up infrastructure pipes, whether these are water pipes or, or fuel pipes, and turning them into, into rockets, you are partly responsible for the immiseration of the place you're governing, clearly, right? That wasn't true in the case of Nat Turner. The slaves were not responsible in the slightest for their wretched condition. Yeah. The Jews in, con in concentration camps were not in the slightest responsible for their wretched condition. So this is, uh, it's a key conceptual di disanalogy here that I think uh, makes these well, not equivalent. This is an example, yeah, right. we see this all the time, in, you know, somebody makes an argument and then in order to maintain that argument, they have to adapt, adopt other arguments which I think are ridiculous, but they will straight face say they're not. And one of one of those arguments is that it doesn't matter if Hamas stopped the rockets. Israel would still want this blockade. Israel will still treat them this way. It doesn't matter what, even if Hamas expressed peaceful intentions and said to Israel, you know, we'd like to get investment here and we'd like to build up Gaza and we don't ever want to um, threaten you with weapons in the future no no israel would still be doing what they're doing because if you acknowledge that if they stop the rockets israel would then probably uh lower the blockade 
then the whole argument goes up in smoke because the slaves didn't have the option to say to the slave owners, listen, we will stop blah, blah, blah if you give us our freedom, right? We'll stop threatening you if you just give us our freedom. That wasn't an option. So they had no choice but to um, fight for their freedom. But, Nor is the general interaction between Israel and Hamas's leadership. I mean, there's. I mean, you're making deals to send twenty thousand people to work in Israel with Hamas. I mean, I don't understand what the parallel would be between slaves and and slave owners. I mean, it's a it's a ludicrous comparison. But one of the things that frustrates me, and look, and I I I, I say no. I'm like, I was happy that you had Finkelstein on. Um, I know there's probably some people that were critical of that. I, I am not one of those people. And because I'm interested in, in hearing his arguments. The one thing that sticks out when you do hear his arguments, though, is the lack of moral condemnation of Hamas on any level. Because as Coleman points out rightly, the number of things that ha- Hamas has done to further enslave the people of Gaza and further you know, keep them under their boot heel for the purpose of waging a war against Israel is something that is unconscionable. And I think any person of good conscience can find you know, a dozen, two dozen things to condemn Hamas for, whether it is something that comparatively is mild, which is the hideous anti-Semitism that you get in sort of schools, textbooks, television, newspaper, radio, etc. I mean, that is, that's, a, that's the, the, the bare minimum. Um, but the the rest of the treatments i mean look you had two people in and i it was either in gaza or west bank at this point you know it's kind of blurry of two people that were accused of collaboration with israel who were beaten to death in public and then they attempted to hang them from a you know a, i guess like a building a or, just, or a tower like a radio tower looking thing and they couldn't they didn't succeed to a baying mob of psychotic people i mean imagine the culture that can produce that kind of reaction to murder people in public and then cheer when they're they're strung up and you know look the same thing we see this with the hostages when they're being released um mobs of people around booing them and yelling at them and screaming at them as they're they're being released it's 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 just that the the culture that that creates that is something that i think any person in good conscience should be able to condemn and i haven't seen him do that so i want to make one more point about nat turner because uh finkelstein on on your podcast he i think more than hinted at and and certainly implied that Nat Turner was kind of like a domino on the road to the Civil War, right? Nat Turner inspired John Brown, and the Civil War was John Brown's war. And um, I think you can even find, like, Frederick Douglass saying, um, you know, good things about Nat Turner's connection to the Civil War. So, look, I really, I don't think that that is a serious causal analysis of the Civil War. I do not think that, I think the truth is, if Nat Turner had died in his crib, the Civil War would have happened roughly when it happened and roughly how it happened. And I went back and looked at um, one of the preeminent historians of the Civil War, James McPherson, and uh, he, he puts it this way. He says, quote, the slavery issue would probably have caused an eventual showdown between North and South in any circumstances, right? Yeah. So he, he was not talking specifically about Nat Turner there. He was just talking about all of the other 
kind of big picture factors that helped lead to the Civil War. But fundamentally, there was a divide between the North and the South, and it was fundamental. That, that irrespective of Nat Turner's existence or rebellion, was going to lead to the Civil War. So while I think a reasonable person can argue that Nat Turner's rebellion, at least some aspects of it, were justified as one person's rebellion against their literal enslavers, right? The same reason you, you or I would have a reason to rebel against someone that kidnapped us. You can't justify it as a domino in the chain towards the end of slavery. Uh, that, that's just ahistorical nonsense. Do you think, do you, can you envisage any scenario, I don't think you can, where this type of thing could be okay? I mean, I would say no. I mean, for for a couple of reasons. I mean, the first thing is that you will hear people like Finkelstein and people on the kind of more pro-Palestinian side talking about collective punishment that is meted out upon people in Gaza and in the West Bank. And, you know, they sometimes make an interesting case that people that support Israel have to really seriously grapple with. But, you know, this is the problem with Nat Turner. The problem with Nat Turner is not that he killed his owner and enslaver. That's not the problem. He's killed. It's that he killed the owner and enslaver's baby and then decided to kill other people who were unconnected to his servitude and his enslavement. And that is the problem. I mean, it, I think I would have a very, very positive vision of Matt, Matt Turner if he, you know, um, focused on the people that were actually doing him harm rather than saying, let's do this collective punishment. I mean, we, we always talk about this in the kind of moral framing of wars or, you know, uh, terrorism and what is terrorism. And you have to just, you know, acknowledge that even though what he is fighting against is something that is one of the great blots on American history that you can't just say, well, because it was, because it was that, we get that he killed the baby too. No, I mean, that's, that's where I stop. And that's where, you know, Eric Foner, who says most abolitionists were opposed to this because they were opposed to violence. Now, might, it, they might have even been opposed to violence in that sort of Quaker way against those who were enslaving Turner. I am not. I think that's justified. I think the person who was enslaving you um, is absolutely a target. And I think that Nat Turner was justified and correct in doing so. But it's where they go further than that. So when you say, I mean, look, it, it would be, we're having a different conversation if October 7th was a action against IDF outposts on, on the border of Gaza. It was not. And that is why we're having this conversation, because it was not targeting um, ID. I mean, they did, of course, because they had to come in contact with the IDF. But if they could have gotten away with it and never come in contact with the IDF, they would have been just as happy. All right. When we were all in Yad Vashem together, um, which is the uh, Israeli Holocaust Museum, one of the things that they uh, taught us, you, you guys probably already knew it, was that uh, the Nazis created a psychological environment for people to uh, be ready to do things they would never have thought that they would do yeah. by associating them with words like bugs and images Vermin and, and uh, yeah. like, kind of like a psychological, breaking a certain psychological ground. It's basically dehumanization. Yeah. yeah. And the left, wittingly or unwittingly, has sort of done a similar thing by constantly comparing Israel in a very shallow way to 
things that strike the chord of the greatest evils in history. So this, for instance, apartheid. You know, Amnesty International uh, called Israel, or was it, I think it was Amnesty International, called Israel an apartheid state. But then if you look at the fine print, they say, well, we don't really mean like South Africa. We just mean, you know, in in certain ways, it's kind of like apartheid. But everybody downloads Israel's an apartheid state. And what's been more evil in the 20th century and 21st century than apartheid? Similarly, Finkelstein really, if you listen to his interview with Piers Morgan, he must have said the word concentration camp like 10 times. Yeah. Now, what does everybody think of with a concentration camp? You think of probably, most people probably conflate it with death camps. But even if we were to just to segregate out the concentration camps of Germany, um, this is what people are now imagining is happening to the people of Gaza. So let's just take a second uh, to expose how unfair that comparison is. I'll start with whoever wants to do it. I have some quotes that I got um, about the German concentration camps, but Moynihan, you know a lot about this. Yeah, I mean, you're right in this sort of dehumanizing language. I mean, we live in a culture right now where we can have five years of conversation about the tragedy at Charlottesville. It's, you know, one person that was killed uh, and I, I mean, I don't even know if that was intentional. The person was backed over by a psychopathic uh, anti-Semite Nazi um, and, 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 you know, we've MSNBC has filled up their airways for five years about this. No one would ever justify that. I didn't I've never heard anyone justify that. I'm sure there's some Nazis in some far reaches of the Internet that do. But to get to the point in which the most hideous massacre in the history of the Jewish state and everyone should keep in mind here that the Jews have a long history of massacres and pogroms over many thousands of years. This one is unbelievable to watch and that it's videoed and filmed. And despite the fact that that's, that that this evidence exists and Noam, you went and and saw the video, the 47 minute video of that. And Israelis are showing this to hope that you understand what happened, despite the fact that people do understand what happened, they can explain that away. And people can say, well, I mean, Charlottesville still, there's never going to be a well. I mean, that was one event, but, you know, that presaged all the Nazism that was going to follow for for the four years of Donald Trump. But the well in this is because of what you say, is because of the dehumanization and is because of framing. And it's been very, very successful as this hideous apartheid state. It's no coincidence that Norman Finkelstein uses concentration camp with such promiscuity because, you know, and, and as he says, you know, my parents were both in concentration camps and he says concentration, they were, they were in death camps. I mean, every concentration camp is not a death camp. Every death camp is a concentration camp. It's part of that archipelago of camps. I don't recall any camps that despite the difficult, horrible, hideous, genocidal conditions did take time out to send rockets into Berlin have that capability to shoot rockets they weren't effective but they you know they landed in weimar (laughs) they landed in vetting they landed in berlin because that's i mean the comparison is so um insane to me that you know imagine this imagine if the uh, you know prisoners of the concentration camp could break out at some point in 1944 and 1945 and take revenge on their captors. Uh, this happened actually a few times, like the, the, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising in 1943. But imagine that there, there wouldn't be people that had the strength to carry a Kalashnikov. 
Imagine them shuffling across, trying to, I mean, these are people that are, you know, 80 pounds, 90 pounds, not fed for years. So let me interrupt you there because a part of this stuff I've been reading, uh, 30,000 of the liberated prisoners died Died, in the first weeks of being released. Yes. Uh, And I'll just read a little bit that I've read. Mostly from eating, by the way. Uh, this intake of cal it just it had a, this adverse effect on people. Yeah, uh, this was what life was like in a concentration camp. Uh, they had limited opportunities for bathing. Additionally, they had to undress in their own barracks before doing so, and regardless of whether walk naked to the bathhouse. For many prisoners, this led to sickness and death. The barracks were damp with lice and rats. Uh, epidemics of contagious diseases erupted frequently. The SS regarded prisoners as enemies deserving brutal punishment. So they were really slaves, too. From the moment of their arrival, prisoners suffered abuse and humiliation, never allowed enough rest. After the morning roll call, most prisoners marched to work. At the end of each exhausting day, prisoners fell onto their bunks, already dreading the next morning. One more sentence. Some prisoners had to sleep in flimsy tents or damp tunnels. Rations were cut, causing mass starvation, hunger, and disease turned many prisoners into living skeletons. Seriously ill prisoners had little hope of survival. Camp hospitals offered no medical treatment. Instead, sick inmates were routinely executed or deported to die in concentration camps. This is, uh, or de- I'm sorry, deported to die in other camps. Um, how can they, I mean, you can go online and see video of Gaza uh, in the, you know, in, in the periods between wars how can anybody compare these two things i, I mean and, and just he, he, he must know what he's doing there of right? course of course i mean a, a quick comment here before because I, I mean i want to hear coleman um specifically address uh, coleman wrote a very good piece for the free press about the apartheid comparison um but yeah i mean the, the keep in mind that getting to work um there was some work that was that had a goal most of it didn't and this is work for the sake of work, breaking rocks because the not, all, all the rocks could never be broken in a million years. It's working people to death, right? It's a form of torture. When you see Gaza, and obviously you don't see skeletal humans in Gaza, I mean, these, the Israelis... Look, the concentration camp, like, we, we, they don't have Wi-Fi at the moment. They don't have telephone. You're cutting off the electricity in the water, which m- means you're providing electricity and water, by the way. Billions of dollars in aid never came into Auschwitz. Billions of dollars of, you know, UN aid, et cetera, et cetera. There's people, there's not, it, this just didn't happen. The, the comparison is so profane to me that it can only be this is why by the way i think it collapses so many of finkelstein's arguments because i don't think a morally serious person can make this argument and it undermines pretty much everything he says after that and i don't think it really even has to be explained very much go look at you know there's a film made um in 1945 by german filmmaker by the way who came back to make make film in his home country called death mills and the Death Mills film, which was shown to people in Germany, is is almost like watching the October 7th stuff. It's just piles and piles of bodies. This is not Gaza in, you know, October 6th. It's complete nonsense. Coleman? Yeah, I want to interject here. Um, so this, this, this point of what are conditions like in Gaza, I think, is key to... Finkelstein's argument over and over again. He calls it the Gaza concentration camp, um, as you point out. And 
and and Finkelstein is obsessed with factual accuracy and accurate citations, and he will always say, "Let's look at the facts and check my citations and so forth." And this is a good thing. Obviously, any any scholar ought to be that way. But I think he behaves as if that's all there is to being an intellectually honest writer, when in fact nothing could be further from the truth. Right? You can paint a totally dishonest picture of the truth without getting a single fact wrong simply by what you highlight and, and what you omit, right? Yeah, so if, I, if, if you had never been to New York City, I could only tell you facts about East Harlem and the worst neighborhoods in Bed-Stuy and the South Bronx without getting a single fact wrong and give you just a total misperception of what the city is like. And on the other hand, mm -hmm. I could just give you facts about Fidei and you know the Upper East Side and and essentially lie to you without getting a single citation wrong. So with that in mind, I want to read this bit from fin Finkelstein's book about Gaza, which I think is representative. He goes, if Gazans lacked electricity for as many as 16 hours a day, if Gazans received water only once a week for a few hours, and 80% of the water was unfit for human consumption, if one of every two Gazans was unemployed and food insecure, if 20% of essential drugs in Gaza were at zero level, and more than 20% of patients suffering from cancer, heart disease, or other severe conditions were unable to get permits for medical care abroad, if Gazans clung to life by the thinnest of threads, it traced back ultimately to the Israeli siege. So when you hear this, this uh, list of facts, your mind's eye pictures a hellscape. You picture like Haiti after an earthquake. Uh, and this softens you up for the analogies to the concentration camps, the open air prisons, and so forth. So with that in mind, I, I spent several hours uh, the other day looking up basic, the most basic proxy health measurements in Gaza. Life expectancy, infant mortality, under five mortality. These are, these are arguably the three most basic snapshot pictures of how a society is doing. And um, it, you know, there isn't amazing information out there, but so the CIA World Factbook has life expectancy in Gaza at 75.6, which is in the 46th percentile of countries in the world. It has infant mortality as, at 14.87, which is in the 43rd percentile of countries. Now, I don't know, I, I think, you know, Finkelstein is the sort of the, the great chronicler of Gaza, and if he, has, if he knows this information to be wrong, then um, I, would, I would love to, you know, hear why it's wrong, uh, because it may be wrong. But it's, it's worth noting, those are both actually above average for the world's population, right? If you don't just look at countries, but you just treat everyone in the world on the same continuum, those are both above average. Uh, okay, and then there was uh, the Palestinian Family Health Survey in 2010, which was done by UNICEF in partnering with a Palestinian, sort of the Palestinian uh, Central Center for Bureau, Bureau of Statistics. And they have under five mortality at 26.8 out of a thousand. Now the global average at that time in 2010 was 51. So this is much better than the global average. 
the global average today is 37 or 38, better than the global average today. And, and the world has gotten better in the past 13 years, right? And then <clears throat> I looked throughout Finkelstein's whole book on Gaza. He has no data on life expectancy in there, no data on under five mortality that I can find, but he has infant mortality, which, uh, and, and he cites one study on infant mortality among Palestinians in Gaza that puts the number at 22.4. But that's for refugees only, which is slightly not representative, but let's assume it is. 22.4, based on Finkelstein's own source. The global average at that time was 34, significantly higher, and 26 today. Um, and the paper was called Increasing Neonatal Mortality Among Palestine Refugees in the Gaza Strip. So. Every single one of these metrics, one of which is from Finkelstein's book, paints the picture of Gaza's basic health statistics as better than the global population average. So on the one hand, we have a set of facts that Finkelstein you know, strings together that paint the picture, paint a picture not that far from a kind of concentration camp. On the other hand, you have the most basic and significant health proxy measurements that paint the picture basically of a middling developing country, you know, like, like Mexico or, or, the, or the Philippines, uh, and, and in some ways better than the global average. So I would really want to ask Finkelstein to reconcile these two, uh, these two pictures for me, knowing that it is possible to recite a set of facts that are each one checks out, but you're fundamentally lying about the basic picture. The amount of money that goes into Gaza too is something that people don't often think about because when you create this hellscape idea, it is the Israelis are sealing Gaza off from the rest of the world. There's no trade. There's no nothing. I mean, I just had to look this up because I was remembering it and I was wondering if I was remembering it correctly. And I was, and this is uh, just in 2020 alone, 600 million from the UN in 2020 alone. And that's not to include Qatar and Egypt. The European Union in the same year gave $80 million just for water projects. The US gives money. Um, obviously, Israel has that um, system of, of giving permits to families in Gaza, 20,000 at its peak, I believe, um, to bring money back in to Gaza. So the, con the concentration camp comparison, again, I, I mean, it would be really fantastic if in 1944, the UN, um, which you know, didn't exist, but a, a, an international agency was giving, you know, $80 million or, you know, $10 million or something to the development of anything within the camp system, which it wasn't doing. So um, a lot of money that goes in. And uh, again, I, I recommend this video that I don't think anyone's really published. I found it on memory. And that's a 2017 video from Al Jazeera. Just, it gives you a sense of like what it looks like in Gaza City. And you know, there's malls and kids eating fast food. And you know, I don't recall any of the camps in that network having a pizza hut, but maybe I can be corrected on that. Don't we know, <clears throat> and I guess left-wing people are the last to want to admit this, that these things like poverty and the things we're talking about are almost always 
caused by the systems of government and institutions. Yes. I mean, the, this trite analogy between North Korea and South Korea. North Korea barely has any food, right? Mm-hmm. South Korea is throwing out food like Americans. Mm-hmm. The only difference is their system. People want to say that Cuba is poor because of the blockade. I'm pretty sure it has nothing to do with the blockade. Yeah. Th- that system always creates poverty. There's nowhere in the world where it hasn't created poverty. And the correlation of whatever Israel is doing to whatever, you know, as you say, Coleman, these statistics may be rosier than reality. And, and also, you know, the, 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 the miserable countries in the world have so many people, the average and, you know, the mean and the median may be quite different in, in, mm-hmm. for these stats, right? Yeah. But um, uh, it, is anybody forcing Gaza to have systems which are tailor-made to impoverish themselves. Is, is Israel doing that to them? And also, in that conversation, we should also talk about, because it always gets left out, the fact that Egypt has the very same blockade and, and mm-hmm. what that, how that undermines, ought to undermine the argument against Israel. So go ahead. I mean, Egypt would be crazy not to, and they've been pretty consistent about it and consistent about letting even letting people out now, I mean, through the Rafa Gate, this is this is often forgotten about in all these conversations that Egypt has that connection, and you know they, they blow up tunnels all the time. There's tunneling and uh, that goes under the border from from Gaza to Egypt. I did something the other day. I happened upon on Facebook, which is not something I I use, but I saw somebody who was living in Gaza and I clicked on their profile and they had, you know, all their friends. You can click on all the profiles of all their friends. And the things that I noticed, uh, which were pretty interesting, were all these people that lived in Gaza, so many of them that had pictures of them in the past couple of years on vacation in places like Turkey, in places like Egypt. Um, you didn't have ever even that, no, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do, but that wasn't again an, op- uh, an, an option for people in concentration camps but the system itself is the problem when you have a system the thing about the soviet system is that the economic backbone of the soviet system was the thing that was advertised as the unique property of the soviet system that was it that's what communism was is an economic system and way of living the cultural stuff that came after that you know um could be expected but gaza hamas does not, I mean, they've talked about themselves in the past, which is a very smart way of doing it, by the way, to say that we're a social welfare organization. Because people will forgive anything you do, provided you give free breakfast to people, as the Black Panthers uh, are remembered as having a free breakfast program and not for killing lots of their, their enemies and their people within their own organization. But Hamas, you know, look at the charter. What is the charter about? What is the raison d'etre of Hamas? It is the destruction of its neighbor. It is not, you know, sort of sheafs of paper about what we're going to do to create an economic engine. The, the sort of the, the jealousy that, that I think underpins some of this stuff, looking across to Tel Aviv, which in 1948 was not much to look at. There's not a ton going on in Tel Aviv in 1948. And now being one of the most impressive tech hubs, um, you know, most impressive economies in the world, as, you know, Dan Senior's two books about this can attest to. Um, there's no economic uh, plan. And one of the things that create, creates this no incentive for an economic plan is the numbers I was just talking about, is the amount of aid that comes in. They live off of aid. This is, I mean, there's a very, um, I think I've talked to um, 
to Coleman about this at one point, the, a woman named Dambiso Moyo, who wrote a book called Dead Aid, about all the problems that aid causes for Africa, and it just entrenches corruption. This is also true in Gaza. It, in, it has entrenched corruption since 2006 and 2007, and of course, Hamas rules with an iron fist and doesn't allow any opposition. But even if it were to allow some form of opposition, a real form of opposition, Aid creates the conditions that these people dig their heels in. They don't even create economic systems because why create wealth when the wealth is given to you? And when I say wealth, I just mean capital. I don't mean it's a wealthy place. So don't, don't take that out of context. But that money that comes in allows that, that hideous, inhuman, fascist regime to stay in power and to not create an economic system that, that helps and betters the lives of, of Palestinians. Call me on anything to that. Um, well, I've, I've some other arguments I want to p- pivot to, actually. Yeah, go ahead. If that's okay. And tell um, some jokes, Michael. You're usually funnier than this. <laughs> I'm pretty grim today, aren't I? Uh, we, don't, we don't have a blockade of Cuba. We have like an embargo. It's, I, I should, yeah, it's an embargo. Other yeah. people have been using the word blockade of Cuba a lot. Yeah, kind of, no. I, I always want to correct it, and then I said it myself. And, and also, every other country in the world trades with Cuba. Every yeah. single country except for America. Yeah. Go ahead. It's trade embargo. That's the phrase. Go ahead, yeah. Coleman. So uh, Finkelstein's an international law professor, and I was a philosophy major. These are two very different ways of thinking. And in a way, I, I think Finkelstein's arguments suffer from coming from a narrow international law uh, perspective. I don't think that's a good thing. Um, so if you see, I mean, if you see, you know, almost any of the interviews or his Democracy Now! debate with uh, Shlomo Ben-Ami, you know, every third sentence starts with the phrase, under international law, yeah. this is the solution, right? This is the only acceptable end game is to follow the letter of international law, to withdraw to precisely the pre-67 borders, uh, to, to apply the letter of international law to the problem of the right of return of refugees, so on and so forth. This is key to, to, to his argument that it wasn't Israel who compromised at Camp David, it was the Palestinians, because the right frame of reference is what does international law dictate uh, and that should be the starting and essentially ending point for, for, for um, uh, the path forward. Now, if you were in a, a moral philosophy seminar, if you were in an ethics seminar, giving that answer to the Israel-Palestine conflict would get you an F because uh, merely applying the letter uh, of the law and international law is, is, is really soft law in a way, um, it doesn't actually answer the question of what would the consequences be of applying the letter of the law and how do those consequences compare to the status quo? In any moral philosophy seminar, you would at minimum have to give an account of what do you think is the likely scenario if Israel just does what international law requires and unilaterally withdraws from the West Bank to the 67 borders. You would have to say, based on my model of the world, this is what I think the consequences of that action would be, 
And here's why that possible future is better for everyone involved than our current present. You could not get away with simply saying, international re law requires it, therefore it is ethically good. Uh, this is why in, philo in academic philosophy, consequentialism and utilitarianism have done such a number on Immanuel Kant's system of ethics, deontology, where Kant had this series of laws that, series of rules you could never break. Uh, you know, there are just so many plausible and thought experiment scenarios where, you know, like, okay, you can't lie. Well, can I lie in this situation? Can I lie to save a thousand lives? Well, you can't torture. Well, can I, can I torture if there's a, a bomb about to go off and so forth? This is why Kantian ethics has been devastated in philosophy. And in many ways, Finkelstein behaves kind of like a Kantian, but about international law. So one thing I would, I would be interested to hear him do is you cannot think like an international lawyer, lawyer. You have to take that hat off and pretend you're in a moral philosophy seminar and answer, really answer the question, what should Israel uh, do? Well, yeah. let me say, I mean, having gone to law school, every lawyer knows that judges rewrite the law with impunity whenever the law as written would lead to ridiculous and, and grossly unfair outcomes. That's what they do. And um, obviously, whatever international law says, and I'm no expert, it can't say that you can invade another country and then demand a reset and then invade them again and demand a reset. Obviously, that can't be the outcome. And this is complicated in my mind by the notion of critical mass, which is something I think about in a lot of areas now. In a democracy, 51% <clears throat> is critical mass for a reliable outcome. If 51% of America decides something, the other 49% will go along with it, and the other countries can rely on that. What is the critical mass when you're dealing with a ruthless dictatorship? You know, if Yasser Arafat signs something, he's not in a position to enforce it. He can get shot the next week, and then whoever takes over just, you know, just rips up the piece of paper like it never happened. And Israel has based their whole existence on it. So... Mm. Um, international law, if that's, if that's what international law means, no one's going to obey international law because you cannot compare the word of a democracy to, to the word of a bandit-led outfit, you know, and um, that's what Israel was facing. So certain things in Camp David where they wanted a presence in the Jordan Valley or whatever mm -hmm. it is, this was in order to counteract the ridiculousness of the notion that given all the things you're saying and the fact that you're, you yourself are constantly saying you're worried about getting assassinated, this is something Arafat was saying over and over, yeah. which is kind of, you know, putting his cars on the table that I don't even think I can control my own people here. How could Israel then be bound by international law just to turn it over in that way? That's, that's not honest, right? That's just not honest. Nobody in that situation would ever do that. So international law can't be if that's the way it has to be interpreted, then I guess they're going to have to break international law like every other country would. 
Um, it's also one party here that is that is um, held to the standards of international law. I imagine it would probably take you about five minutes to find 75 violations of international law well, coming well, from Gaza, too. Well, let's talk about that, yeah. because here you have, um, I've said it a few times already in other contexts, it's the only war I've ever known about where the enemy wants its own people to die more than the, the people they're fighting. Yeah. So. And, and Hamas has said this in interviews with the Times, and also Common Sense tells us they can't have any military objective here. No. Right? So no. the objective is public relations in some way. Well, it's unfortunate, too, that they have no military objective because it changes the, the frame of the conversation. I mean, people aren't discussing this as a sovereign state was invaded. And which is what happened. <laughs> it's really, Israel was invaded by its neighbor. And that's, that's something that is not a frame that, that we see very frequently when talking about this. But yeah, I mean, the, the international law seems to be, I mean, like a lot of this stuff just seems to be a one-way street. I mean, my question for someone like uh, Norman Finkelstein is if you're looking at this in this kind of framework of international law, what, what are Israel's um, you know, obligations? Because considering he says you know, they have an obligation to resist, this is the kind of, I hear this all the time, which is bizarre. They have an obligation to, to as an occupied um, piece of land, to, to fight the occupier. And again, it's, again, another conversation of whether or not Gaza is occupied. But what can Israel do, right? There is, if you don't care about the existence of Israel, you don't care about uh, the success of a Jewish state or the protection of a Jewish state, you can just kind of elide this point quite easily. But if you do, you have to understand that countries have to defend themselves and have some sort of control of their borders. Um, if it's not a embargo, because of course this embargo is specifically focused on on kind of dual use things, right? Things that can and, and you know the complaint is that you know cement is dual use. I, mean, I, I get those complaints too, but the, if if you if you take if you lift that. And despite actually having that, you have a force that's strong enough to actually invade Israel, um, evade all of the, um, I mean, I don't know if you saw the New York Times story uh, yesterday about the plan that the Israelis had. I mean, it's quite complicated and complex. And they had this and they had the weapons to the, do it. The, the Gazans had. The, the Gazans. That the Gazans had, that Hamas had, uh, that the Israelis called Operation Jericho Wall, which was what happened on October 7th. And apparently it mirrors it quite quite exactly. But if they have the capability of, do, of doing that under the current circumstances, under this, you know, they're, they're being squeezed with an inch of their life and they still manage something like this, how does one control that border? How does one control a restive population in West Bank? Now, this was a different conversation, I think, when Norman Finkelstein started becoming interested in this in the early 1980s. He puts it, you know, it was, it was the... the, the war in Lebanon that, that got him interested in this issue. Because at that point, we're talking about mostly secular, um, mostly Marxist parties uh, that were the liberationist movements in the Palestinian territories. That's a different thing. As you said, Noam, when you have a enemy who not only doesn't mind civilian casualties, actually quite celebrates them. We are a nation of martyrs. As, it's their objective. As, it's, it's their objective, it's, yeah. It's their objective. That's yeah, so when I mean, you have a nation of martyrs, I mean, you can negotiate people. All the negotiations that you have in, in wars in the 20th century work on the presumption that the enemy doesn't want all of its people to die. 
and doesn't want its own leadership to die, right? The leadership that can actually do this, you know, is ensconced in Doha and, and all these other places, right? I mean, Arafat was, was, was um, you know, had a nice little spread in Paris. I mean, they always have these places outside of the, uh, the Palestinian territories. But how does one negotiate with a partner he's, who he's, doesn't... He's He's in the Turner suite, I think, in the in the hotel in the in, in, in yeah. <laughs> in Suha, his wife, who's just spending money in 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 Paris, spending UN money. Um, but no, I mean, how do you negotiate with those people, and how does Israel secure its borders? I mean, okay, so it pulls out of West Bank. It, re- it it you know takes away this this blockade whatever you want to call it siege as Finkelstein calls it on Gaza what is the result of that I know that Noam you agree with me on this and we've talked about it that a lot of this is the fault of the Second Intifada and I would love for Norman Finkelstein and people like that to say look. I love the Palestinian people. I want a Palestinian state. I hate Israel. I can acknowledge the Second Intifada was an enormous strategic mistake. Explain what the Second Intifada was quickly. For the Second Intifada is basically starts in two, 2000, goes to 2002, and that is the Intifada, the uprising against Israel, which in the Second Intifada took the form of a lot of suicide bombings, which was, I mean, and this was buses were blowing up every day in Israel, and I think over a thousand Israelis died in the Second Intifada, which is just like, a, it was it was a mass bloodletting and terrorism in its real form in which Israelis were afraid to go out in public in Tel Aviv, go onto buses, go outside anywhere in Jerusalem. I mean, this is just a terror that was visited upon the Israeli population in a way that you wouldn't have had in 1970. People in 1970, when you're hijacking planes, when you're going into Connellystrasse in, in, in Munich to, to kill wrestlers in the Israeli team, they're not blowing themselves up. Because those people were not Islamists. The, the, the shaheed and the willingness to die was, was different. Let me just add, because, you know, <clears throat> a, a, as someone who grew up around Israelis, this is the pivotal event in modern yeah. Israeli history. <clears throat> it, it deflated, it took all the air out of the peace process, the peace yeah. movement. Yeah, yeah. Because this, at the time, Israel was trying very, very hard. Everybody knows it during the Rabin and Barak years. Everybody knows Israel was thinking that maybe we can actually pull this off. Maybe there's going to be peace now. 100,000 yeah. people turn out in Tel, in Tel Aviv Square for peace now. And I just remember there was this expectancy. Is it really going to happen? And then, as it kind of fell apart, it was answered with basically a slow-rolling version of October 7th. It was yeah. kind of the same number of casualties and kind of the same types of deaths, yeah. atrocities, children. But this wasn't in the face of a, you know open-air prison. This was in the face of an Israeli leadership that was sincerely and obviously dedicated to really... Uh, making good on a peace process and the israeli public said if this is what they're going to do to us now they're never going to make peace with us and you saw the country shift to the right and that's when for the first time in my life it wasn't clear anymore that i could assume that every you know non-religious fanatic israeli that i would meet was yearning for the peace process up until that time Basically, every Israeli I knew, even if they were skeptical, was on board with it. You know, I don't believe it's going to happen, but of course, let's let's go through with it. Let's see what happens. And that's not the case anymore. Now there's a large segment of the population, not who doesn't want peace, not who doesn't 
wish there was a two-state solution, but thinks that this is only going to come out bad for us. Yeah. So we should avoid this. When they're ready, they will be clear. We'll know it when they're ready. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I'll just say one more thing. There's no reason in the world that Abbas couldn't get on TV tomorrow night and say, listen, in 2007, Ehud, Ehud Omert and I were this close to a peace settlement. Whatever happened, happened. I call on the Israeli people. Let's pick it up from there. Let's make peace. I'll, just like Sadat, I will come to the Knesset and let's, let's do it finally. Now, yes, there would be some Israelis that would still be skeptical. But it would turn, it would roil the Israeli political atmosphere. It would be impossible for the Israelis to say no to that, both in terms of the reaction from their citizens and world reaction. And the West Bank would be taken over by Hamas pretty quickly after that, though. So, 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 so it's like a common sense question. Why, yeah. doesn't, why doesn't he say that? And there's, as we said, there's the model for it. That's exactly what Sadat did. Yeah. And it worked for him. So the, the answer that seems to be the case, he doesn't do it because either he doesn't want it or maybe he wants it, but he knows it's, not, it's just too risky. He knows it's not popular, in, you know, particularly in the West Bank. I mean, the, if you look at the opinion poll numbers and the best ones we can get, Hamas unpopular where it rules, popular where it doesn't rule, which is and, you know, in the West Bank. The left, which is so often so unrealistically kumbaya and says, well, you know, we should all just hold hands. They don't call upon him to do any such thing. No. Uh, and by the way, quick correction. I just I think I said 2002. I meant to say the Intifada went to 2005. And, you know, it was a thousand Israelis. And um, I just gave a quick check and a majority of them, about 700 were civilians. So yeah. about 300 and, IDF and people, but yeah. and children, yeah, yeah, really, um, really bad and, stuff. And so we're gonna wrap it up, and you know, talking about international law again, it's really not, and it, and it's, it's, I even find it difficult. Yes, under international law, if Hamas is using human shields, and we pretty much know it's true now, and if they're purposely putting their military resources within civilian areas, and if they're not letting people flee then if this was a criminal trial, they would be guilty of all the death that comes from it. Right? I mean, if, if uh, I believe in the law, if you create a situation like that and then an innocent person gets shot by the cops, you are responsible for the fact that the cops shot, that, that becomes a murder on you. Mm-hmm. And yet, it's hard to think of it that way, isn't it? And mm-hmm. yet, when we know the Israelis are, are killing these people, we somehow still blame the Israelis I struggle with that, um, uh, and you, uh, only in retrospect will we really be able to judge it. But just because Hamas is doing this, that doesn't morally give Israel a free hand. They still it still has yeah. to be worth it to them to kill these people, even if they know that the people they're killing are uh, on Hamas's tally. Uh, how do you how do you make sense of all that? It's very hard for me. No, it, it is very difficult. I mean, I think like doing the moral arithmetic, it, it, it doesn't seem that hard, but it is emotionally and psychologically difficult when you're confronted with video after video of pulling children out of the rubble. Somehow that 
makes an end run uh, uh, end run around all of the 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 logic in the world and um it, it's uh, it's a huge challenge for can Israel. I, can I make the argument to me? Listen, Israel, you know why this happened to you. It happened to you because you took your eye <laughs> off the ball. Mm-hmm. So there's a solution here. One solution is, you know what? Put your eye back on the ball. You've made your point, And stop with this already and let it go forward. What are the odds that you're, gonna, you're killing you know, 10,000, 15,000 of us um, and you know there's another way you could handle this, which is just to not make the same mistake you made, and let's move on and, and return to the status quo. I mean, um, the, the, that's, that's a tough argument. You know? It's a tough argument, yeah. I, I, I think that, you know, the, the, the response from the Netanyahu government and, you know, all the kind of goofballs in his coalition, the Ben Gavirs and people like that, uh, which, of course, you have to pacify those people, too, but is that we, for a number of years, thought that Sinwar and these people wanted peace, not peace, but they wanted a successful Gaza, and they were willing to, you know, uh, make these deals about people coming to work and make other deals and just keep the peace, right? But when you find out that they took their eye off the ball because they put too much faith in these people and believed in it and say, well, now we can't do that again and we have to destroy you because we presumed that you actually had some sort of um, rational and kind of moral core that you didn't want this to happen again, right? I mean, it's it's a horrible thing to watch as, you know, look, I, I wanted to say this, like, I... I see these people out in the streets in New York protesting, all over the world protesting, and the way people spit this word Zionist, which I wish we'd retire because it doesn't really have much of a meaning after the establishment of the Jewish state. We don't, Zionism, Theodore Herzl saying it makes a lot of sense, Chaim Weizmann saying it makes a lot of sense. But this, the way people spit this word and talk about you, these horrible Zionists, every quote-unquote Zionist that I know is deeply pained by what is happening in Gaza. And I don't, I'm not exaggerating that at all. I've had, and I've had conversations with you, Noam, about this, that it's a horrible thing to watch. And you do think like these people have to be destroyed, but what is the cost? The moral calculation is something that people of good conscience, and I hope I, I would be one of those people, that, you know, we look at this and say, is there an alternative? Is there a way of doing this without, in, in saying like these numbers that people come up with of civilian dead are, are not to be trusted doesn't mean that anyone thinks that there aren't civilians dying. I mean, I saw, you know, the number, uh, uh, Brianna Joy Gray tweeting that na- numbers 20,000. It was 12,000 last week. And th- there's been a, there's been a ceasefire, but now it's up to 20,000, 7,000 people died. And, and there's a manipulation of this, but it doesn't mean that obviously that it's not happening and that people aren't concerned about it. But we live in an age where every time someone, I mean, you don't think about the person behind the camera, right? You don't think of the oddness of that, where there's, you know, rubble everywhere pulling and everyone has their phone out. They know what they're doing. They're doing this for a purpose. And would you think about the bombing of Dresden, the bombing of Hamburg, the multiple bombing raids of Berlin, if there were camera phones pulling Germans out from underneath the rubble? And there is a very, very, very good film film that I advise everyone to watch. I mean, it's absolutely mesmerizing film. It's called The Natural History of Destruction, a Ukrainian filmmaker. And there's no voiceover. It is just uh, uh, archival footage of bombing uh, the bombing of Germany. 
And it actually, you come out of it with this kind of moral question, like, oh my God, these are the Nazis. My grandfather, my, my great uncle was a bombardier over Germany. And I think he is the most heroic person in the world. And I'm watching this and saying, good God, this is kind of crazy to see this footage that I've never really seen. A lot of it actually hasn't been seen before. And you can do that. You can make people, convince people to stop a war um, on that footage alone, but no one has ever had that conversation about Germany. Very few people, Nazis do. They, they march on the, the anniversary of let the bombing me, of Dresden. Let but me that's say something. I think Colmore said something too, but I yeah, had sure. two, thought, two thoughts while you were talking. First of all, part of the blame here is the world's reaction because the game theory of all this is to imply that a, a country ought to put all its military resources you know, it, right in the heart of all their civilian people, yeah. and therefore, and now you can't do anything to me, which is exactly the opposite of international law. And if you were to picture it in a more obvious way, that Hamas actually gathered all their civilians and forced them to be exactly around every rocket launcher that they send rockets from, and we could see it like, as a pen, right? Mm -hmm. Then the world would be so outraged. One might imagine they would then put tremendous pressure uh, uh, to get Hamas out of there. If you could actually see it, you know, yeah. the, the Hamas soldiers. But that's actually what's going on. But we're not reacting to it accordingly. Because if you saw that, you would say, well, we, we have to get them out of there because we can't say this is okay. Because obviously, yeah. number one. Number two, so I think the world is really not sufficiently... Um, seeing things with clarity in terms of these civilian casualties and therefore it's not activating them to make the, the pro to have the proper reactions but the second thing is if you can smuggle these rockets or the or the um the the, the things you need to build rockets into gaza uh, you can smuggle anything into gaza and if you can smuggle yeah. anything into gaza you can smuggle radioactive material into gaza mm -hmm. and i think that's really um I don't know if it's unspoken, but that was one of the first things I thought of. It's pretty clear now, especially with Iran doing everything it can to enrich uranium, that to allow Gaza to stay is to allow the risk of some sort of dirty bomb in, in Israel. There, there's no way around that. And, um, and I think that is the knockout argument to what I said before about just doing a reset. And they can't risk it anymore because it kind of brought home to them maybe even people as as hardened as Netanyahu would become complacent that this could really become existential There's, we are very lucky they didn't have uranium we don't know what yeah. they could have next time and we can't take that risk we're done taking it oh the other option would just be to totally occupy Gaza again as it once was which I, I don't think would be a terrible idea but they, they apparently don't want to do that uh, a quick point before Coleman uh, says something, because you just reminded me of this thing that Finkelstein said, um, you know, when when Eli and Finkelstein were talking about human shields, he gave an example of people getting on the roof of a building and Finkelstein said, well, you know, that's because um, they, they were warned that this um, place was going to be blown up. It was going to be blown up because it's a Hamas commander headquarters. He didn't mention that. But there was an interesting thing when I when I, I heard him talking about this is that the incredible th these are human shields obviously they get on the roof but what is implicit in that 
is that they know that the Israelis don't want to kill civilians. That's why they're on the roof. So they get on the roof. Israel doesn't want to kill civilians, and they call off the operation. And that is kind of worth thinking about and something that I don't think um, someone like Finkelstein actually grapples with because you're, 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 you know, this sense that Israelis want... I mean, look, if you had... If they had the similar technology in Gaza City that Hamas had and they saw a bunch of Israelis gathering on a roof, that would be a point to hit it. They would say, let's do this. There's 100 Israelis on the roof and, and we can do it in one shot. And I think that when he says, that, well, they, you know, they go up there because the Israelis, they know that the, it's like, well, yes, because they know that the Israeli Air Force takes. And I have mentioned the book a million times, Ronan Bergman's book, the guy who actually reported this story yesterday in The Times about the plan um, uh, getting to the Israelis on October 7th. His book, Rise and Kill First, is a long morality play about assassination programs and people, the debates they had about uh, civilian casualties. And it's really, really interesting. Those are debates that don't happen on the other side. What you point out, Michael, um, the idea that you can know that your enemy cares about your life and use that against them, that only works if you're running a totally different moral software on your brain. Like if, if, if you and I are our enemies, and we both agree killing civilians is bad, it makes, it, it, it wouldn't even compute that, oh, you know, th thank God my enemy cares about our lives so much, we can use that against them, right? <laughs> that it, it makes no sense. You would have to have a totally, be running a totally different software, a software about martyrdom and jihad, where these are your fundamental concepts of right and wrong, for that even to make sense, because if you're running the same software, you're essentially admitting your enemy is more moral, fights more yes. morally than you, yeah. right? And that, yeah. that, how can you continue fighting someone while acknowledging that they're more ethically sound than you are? It, 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 would, it would eliminate the will to fight, frankly. Um, so you have to be running a different software. There's no better yeah. proof that they are raised, whether religiously, culturally, or both, uh, to, to to uh, to think in terms of very alien concepts, and particularly when the conversation is—I mean, anyone can look at this conversation that's happening now. It is about the immorality of Israel and Israel's response, and it, it just seems wildly backwards to me. And this is a mass form of gaslighting. Because <laughs> I wake up in the morning, I'm like, "Am I fucking crazy?" That the conversation is constantly about uh, Israel being one of the most immoral powers in the world. All right, we got to wrap it up. Um, I want to say uh, one thing. I want to say yeah. one thing for. Uh, Go ahead. That I'm bugged by about Finkelstein before we. So, uh, Finkelstein has has a spiel about Camp David and the Clinton parameters, that basically goes like this: It's not Israel that made the concessions; it's the Palestinians that made the concessions. Because if you start from what international law requires and subtract from that. Actually, it's, the Palestinians were willing to give up a bit of land and, you know, and, and so on and so forth. And then when you get to the Clinton parameters, he says, actually, no, it's not true that Arafat rejected the Clinton parameters and, 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 uh, and Barack accepted them because they both said yes with reservations. And their reservations were the exact same length, 10 pages for one, 10 pages for the other, okay? Mm -hmm. So here's another example where I feel that there is 
a superficial commitment to factual accuracy and my citations check out while painting a picture that's fundamentally false. Because you know it's obvious to anyone that the fact that two people write documents that are both 10 pages and both labeled reservations does not in any way imply that they are equivalent, right? I could write one paragraph of reservations to the Clinton parameters that rejected them completely more than someone else that wrote 10 pages of nuanced reservations that actually accepted them more, right? This is all common sense. So it's irrelevant that they're both 10 pages. Um, and I, wanna, I, want to, I wanna read from Shlomo Ben-Ami's book, and, and Finkelstein has quoted Ben-Ami and debated Ben-Ami. This is from his new book, not his, uh, not his book from the mid-2000s. Okay, he, said, he says, um, of the Clinton parameters and reservations, and even though Arafat's reservations involving fundamental issues such as the right of return, the Temple Mount, the territorial percentage, percentages, all largely outside the parameters, amounted to a big no. He, could, he, he still could claim that we were on equal footing and that we too had our own reservations, though they were mostly inside the parameters. In our defense, I should say that Barack's reservations were for all practical purposes eventually dropped and would not prevent us from defending the letter and spirit of the parameters when we went a few weeks later for a last-ditch attempt to save the peace in Taba. Taba did not produce an agreement precisely because we wanted to translate the parameters into a peace treaty, and the Palestinians addressed them as a straitjacket they refused to work with. And then one, one quick quote, too. Now, Ben-Ami is in Europe, and Clinton has... Oh, tell everybody who Ben-Ami is, by the Sh way. Shlomo Ben-Ami was foreign minister under Barack, and he was one of the lead negotiators. Uh, he was in the room as much as anyone in the world for um, uh, the Clinton uh, Camp David, the Clinton parameters, and the scramble of phone calls and backroom meetings that were trying to save peace um, in January and February and March of 2001. So in January 2001, uh, he's also a trained Oxford historian, um, which also makes him kind of an interesting chronicler of this. He says um, uh, Clinton is, is trying to get a last-minute meeting with Arafat, so Benami goes, I cut short my European tour only to discover that Arafat would not attend the meeting. Yet the meeting was not entirely uneventful. For the first time, the Palestinians themselves, and not some third party, spelled out their reservations on the parameters. This is, he's now quoting the Palestinians. We don't want Clinton's boxes. We want a freewheeling debate, was the underlying motif in Saeed Arakat's presentation. The document he presented us was a radical amendment to each and every single chapter of the parameters. It practically annulled them. And then he goes on to list all the ways in which it completely canceled out the parameters. So I, I think, again, this is an issue where you can pr present a cherry-picked set of facts that paint a picture that Israel, uh, the Israelis and Palestinians equally objected to the Clinton parameters, but this is intellectually dishonest, right? While being technically accurate, it's totally intellectually dishonest outside of the co overall context of what was going on in those few months. Yeah, I mean, on the peace plan, there's so much to it, but you, you correct me if I'm wrong. In general, 
everybody who was there basically in one way or another recounts that Barack was trying to make a deal. And then the, the people try to say, no, he didn't really want to make a deal. And then the flip side, there's nobody who recounts the notion that Arafat was really trying to make a deal. In fact, everyone who was there basically says he really didn't. He really looked like he was trying to find an excuse. And then the people like Finkelsteiner try to say, why that's not true. But it's, qu it's quite a gulf that without getting to the specifics, the general vibe from basically every expert is that this side was really trying and this side was trying not to. And anybody who's ever been involved in negotiations understands that dynamic right away. You, when, when both sides really want to make a deal, a deal happens. The clock doesn't run out because everybody knows that the clock is ticking. I say this because the clock kind of ran out when Clinton left office. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 this has been one of the issues that I spent the most time trying to research and trying to be the most um, intellectually honest about because it's very, very important. Did Israel really try to make a deal? Did the Arabs really uh, scuttle the deal? And I'm more and more convinced that it's true. I just, I just am. There's and, another, there's uh, another um, I yeah. think, uh, really important quote from Ben Ami. And Ben Ami does not spare his criticism of Barack or the Israelis. He his lists arrogance, right? The, the, about his the arrogance. arrogance of Barack, the, the tactical mistakes that were made by Israel and Americans as well. Uh, um, but he goes, uh, this is right in this time when, when the world is trying to get Arafat to meet with Clinton about the parameters, to meet in person. And Arafat is everything. It's, I'm too busy, I'm, you know, as, as if anything could be more important. I'm, I'm over here, I'm over there. He goes, uh, Ben Ami goes, it is unlikely that the world has ever witnessed such an extensive effort aimed at trying to persuade the leader of a national movement to overcome his fears, pluck up his courage, and come to a decision worthy of a peacemaker. It was all in vain. So really think about that. He's saying it's unlikely the world has ever witnessed so much international pressure coming down on, on a national leader to make a particular decision. Does that sound like someone that was saying yes to the Clinton parameters? No. I mean, Clinton was very outspoken, you know, you know dismissive of Arafat, mm -hmm. angry at Arafat, you know. I mean, the, the, the left or the anti-Israel people, want to, they have an answer for it. If you listen to the debate I do with Aaron Maté, he's got a dismissive like slogan for every single person who claims that Israel tried right. to make peace. So he's is a it, mouthpiece. He's is a it bitch. just that, that. Every, everyone who thinks Israel wants to make peace happens to be a hack? Or is it that everyone who believes that is strategically labeled a hack <laughs> by people that just aren't open to that evidence. Yeah, right? let, let me find, just before we go, but go ahead, Mike, we want to say something. I'm going to just want to, I want to close by reading the letter from Ammer. But go ahead, Mike. No, I, I just, the, it's Prophets Without Honor? Is that the ben Ami book? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's I very, have it on, I have it on the shelf. I haven't, I, I'm not going to comment because I, it's, it's something that is in, I'm rereading Michael Oren's book, uh, mm. Six Days of War, and um, when I finished that, because I read that when it came out, I think in like 2005, uh, maybe 2002, that came out. Um, yeah, and I, that one's that one's on my shelf because getting into the weeds on that stuff, I've I've noticed Mate and Finkelstein and people people um, to I, you know I know what Clinton said about this stuff and how dismissive he's been of Arafat, which I think is. Uh, 
right and justifiable. And if anybody wants a very good, very critical uh, portrait of Arafat, I recommend uh, the book Arafat's War by Ephraim Karsh, the Israeli historian who teaches, I think, at King's College in London. It's a very good book. So the best evidence I've come across about this issue, uh, this is a, a letter. It was an open letter written by Nabil Amr, who was a member of Arafat's cabinet. And he wrote an open letter in, uh, I think, an Arabic paper. And, and it included the following. Didn't we jump for joy over the failure of Camp David? Didn't we throw mud at the picture of President Clinton, who dared to submit a proposal for a state with some modifications? How many times were we asked to do something that we could do, but we did not do it? We have committed a serious mistake against our people, authority, and the dream of the establishment of our state. And of our state. And he also, there's another quote, uh, I don't have it here, where he says, uh, were we honest? No, we were not. And what happened to Amr in 2004? He was shot. Mm-hmm. He didn't die, but he was shot. This is, this is what he, that's, that was what he got for that letter. So what is more convincing than a letter that um, communicates that vibe from within his own, within his own cabinet? No. I mean, if, if, if there was a letter from somebody within Barack's cabinet that said something like that, Clinton and Mate, I mean, uh, Mate and Finkelstein would be trumpeting it every day. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that would be their go-to thing. It's amazing that letter's not better known. Anyway, um, all right, we got to go. This has been great. Um, another thing I want to talk with you guys, maybe we could do another one. I don't want to impose on you guys, but uh, uh, maybe we do it in person. I, I want to talk about historians. I'm really learning a lot, uh, reading a lot of history books now and seeing how kind of, corrupt they are Correct. in certain ways yes. and i'm and writing also, about this right now by the way i meant to say to say that to you yeah i have um, um as a matter of fact i just got a, a bunch of uh, stuff from an archive in california this morning that i've been trying to ferret out to demonstrate that uh one particular historian has been um lying about a lot of things and look one of the most incredible things you sent this uh, text i think the other day about reading history and the kind of corruption of historians and i've been in the middle of this this project which i think i'm just going to release on my own because it's too big i know editors want to want to cut it down to like a coherent piece and i want it to be long rambling and incoherent because there's so much in these books that i'm reading right now the number of apocryphal quotes i mean look i'll give you an example of one yesterday um uh this uh kissinger dies and there's a quote about uh, Chile and about the overthrow of, of um, Allende and the installment of Pinochet. And there's a quote uh, from, it's in I think most of the ones that I read in which Kissinger says, um, you know, we don't think that the people of Ch- uh, Chile should be able to choose anything for themselves. We should make this choice kind of thing. And it's too perfect a quote. And I tried to find it and I cannot find the source. And I finally found it in a Seymour Hirsch book from 1983. And we all know oh. Seymour Hirsch's uh, fealty to the truth. But that's just become a common quote. And this is common. In, in, you know, historians are amazingly lazy. And provided it fits the preformed narrative, um, I had a page in a book yesterday in which three of the things. Three of the things were provably false, but you had to dig, you had to look, because what happens is somebody quotes it, you know, in 1950, and then it's quoted by 50 different people, and the citation is the last historian quoted. You have to keep going down that chain to realize that half of this stuff is total bullshit. So the historian conversation is a good one. That's the whole thing. I I know we got in, but this whole whole reliance on quotes, Mm -hmm. and I sent, uh, as I said yesterday, you know, it, it... 
if you could prove anything you wanted to about my marriage <laughs> with a legitimate quote of something I've said over the years, and and if and if you had my and if I kept a diary, I could imagine that the diary would even be tilted in the other way because when do you write in the diary when you're angry? It's it's it's, it's personal <laughs> Yelp. You, yeah, you don't yeah. say what a great restaurant. You say this place fucking sucked. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I love my wife so much. I love. love I'm, I'm sick of this bitch. You know. You know. And, but. And and so you take a quote and then you can put it up against it. Ben Gurion said this. Yeah, ben yeah. Gurion said that. But the the uh, again critical mass. The, the best indication of when things you were thinking of, things you said when you were angry, things you were flirting mm. with, ideas that you entertained but then dismissed. They weren't realistic. Somebody talked you out of it. All mm. these things is what you did. Yeah. Uh, your your thought process is reached a critical mass if you actually did it. Yeah. I mean, there can be some exceptions to that where there's, you know, a long historical record where it just, you know, you really, really wanted it, but it wasn't feasible. But this quote here, a sentence here, a part of a sentence here is just, it's, it's dishonest. And this is why I'm such a truster of Benny Morris, because if most, most historians, all historians are judge, prosecutor, and jury... Only the best historians like Benny Morris are also the defense attorneys. So Coleman and I have read a lot of Benny Morris. Mm-hmm. There is no fact in, in, a, in a Benny Morris book that's left out such that if you wanted to defend yourself against the very point he made, you couldn't go to his book and get the yeah. fact. Mm-hmm. And he reminds me of Glenn Lowry in that way, who is a hero of a lot of us, which um, when Glenn, if you ever see him recount the position he's about to disagree with yeah. he does it with such integrity you're convinced in the other side you know, he, he's, I've seen Juanita my wife she's like yeah he's right I'm like wait he didn't finish Juanita <laughs> <laughs> this is what Benny Morris does he, he, he puts it all in there where almost all the other historians they take no chances with the truth yeah, yeah. they take no chances so the thing um, about quotes them and, and this is yeah. right we all speak yeah. with forked tongues we all speak differently to different people and nobody does that more than politicians so the quote from a politician is essentially worthless without as you point out the action behind it and what actually happened i mean people tell people a lot of things you know the difference between people caught on nixon tapes and people in their memoirs and people in public it's they're entirely different and it's just a happenstance that we have the Nick, nixon tapes but yeah n- i never trust those quotes and, for anything I, th- I think Benny Morris is quite rigorous with quotes because I, I, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me revealing this, but I emailed him about <clears throat> this website I found where the, the uh, Iraqi prime minister in like 1950 is entertaining the idea of trading Iraq's Jews for Palestine's Arabs. Mm-hmm. Like, Israel, you don't, want, you don't want your Palestinians. We don't want our Jews. Let's swap one for one, <laughs> right? And he's going A to blockbuster trade. <laughs> Yeah. And he's just like kind of floating the idea to various British people, people at the UN at the time and so forth. And I sent it to Benny Moore. like, is this this stuff legit? And and he's like, it it seems more like someone considering an idea. Yeah. Like, it's not, it's not, you couldn't therefore say, as a stylized fact, the Iraqi prime minister proposed doing this. You know, it's like, so, so I think he has a high bar. Yeah, for what he considers someone endorsed this plan. The, the, the revisionists in there's a whole group of these Gar Alperwitz being the most famous one revisionists on the, on the atomic bomb stuff 
often quote people um, in the Japanese government that were making peace overtures. And then you dig into it and you realize that they were doing this independently and had absolutely no power. And, you know, reading it on its own, you're like, wow, look at all these Japanese people and, you know, the Swiss consulate and all this stuff going out and saying we need to make peace. But they were just rogue actors who literally had no power. And unless you know that, you know, it's it sounds pretty impressive, but it, it, it isn't when you dig in. All right, gentlemen, we got to go. All right. Uh, hopefully, hopefully see you guys uh, soon. Thank you very much. I'm just going to release this as um, a response to Norman Finkelstein. Sure. Because it, sure. Um, I think a lot of people will be interested in that. Okay. <laughs>